First reading is from Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and lame and blind. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The Gospel of the Lord. Luke, Luke 14, verse 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. 
So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, you're very different than from what we normally imagine you to be. And when we look at Jesus Christ and we see his humility and how he did not consider equality with you something to be grasped onto, but made himself nothing and became humble to the point of death on the cross, and that that became his path to exaltation, that's a, that's a strange path, counterintuitive, goes against all our instincts. But will you grant us to see who you are, who Jesus is, with a clarity that calls forth a response in us of complete surrender. And that is a remarkable thing, and it requires a deep work of grace, a miracle. And that's precisely the miracle we ask for now. And help us to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, uh, please look back at both those readings, the long one and the short one. Um, that last one, um, <clears throat> it's a bit of a doozy for Mother's Day. Did you catch that? Um, uh, I, can, I can just imagine somebody saying, Pastor, you got to be kidding. Um, I can just imagine somebody saying, the, the Bible, Pastor, is a big book. And of all, of all the material that's in that very big book, you had to choose this for Mother's Day. And um, I can imagine somebody saying, are you, I knew you were clueless, but are you really that tone deaf? Um, uh, and if, 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 if that comes up for you, I totally, fair. Um, here's, let me just give the, the explanation. Um, our tradition here at Emmanuel is that every single week, we, what we do is we take a book of the Bible and then we read it bit by bit and week by week, and then we unpack what it means for us. And, um, and so that's our tradition. We don't select readings for, for Mother's Day, um, and, and we don't avoid readings for Mother's Day, so this was just the next bit. Okay, so, um, and... Uh, um, friends, it's, you know, just in case you didn't know, it's Mother's Day. So if there's a way that you can honor your mother today, do so. Uh, and uh, I also, we also want to recognize that uh, this is a very painful day for a lot of people. And so if that's where you're at, um, we want to say if there's any way we could walk with you in that, we'd love to. Now, having said all that, um, reading this text on Mother's Day actually gives us an opportunity, and the opportunity is for us to feel just how bonkers Jesus' teaching is here in that second reading. I mean, do, do you feel how outrageous what Jesus says there is? Um, I mean, just think about it for a second. You, you've heard of the Ten Commandments? Yes? Um, one of them is honor your father and your mother. And Jesus says very straightforwardly, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to hate your parents. 
And not only that, we've already said a, a couple times already in this service, we've referenced uh, what Jesus says is the animating center of the entirety of the moral life, which is about love. Love God and, and love neighbor and everything else flows from that. And yet Jesus uses the word hate. What in the world is Jesus getting at? Because he appears to throw, you know, family values right under the bus. And it's not just that. He also says in verse 26, not only are you going to have to hate your family and things like that, but you're even going to hate your own self. You're going to have to hate your own self. And, and in verse 33, he says you're going to have to renounce all that you have to be my disciple. And so here's my question. My question is this. How is that not just obviously toxic? Or maybe a better question, how could Jesus, what could Jesus mean here and how might that possibly be a good thing? Now that's the question. In order to answer it, we're going to spend all our time in the first reading, the longer reading. So page 10 and 11. And the reason we're going to do that is uh, the, the first big reading and the second smaller reading, they're actually the same reading. They, just, they come right after each other. So what we're going to do is look at that longer reading. And I want to show you how Jesus tells a series of stories that unveils the hidden toxicity of a self-absorbed life. And he also explains what it looks like to live free. So go over to that longer reading and uh, let's get into it. Let me set the scene just a little bit here. Um, this is a Sabbath day and Jesus is having dinner or lunch in a Pharisee's house. The Pharisees were a, a, uh, a sect or a party within the religious life of uh, ancient of, of uh, Judea at this time. And you could cut the tension in that room with a knife. Um, it was a super tense meal. Why? Well, uh, Jesus and the Pharisees had been at loggerheads, not just on this day, but on a, a pre, a, for months, perhaps, uh, over a, a theological debate. And, and the debate was whether or not it was appropriate to heal people on the Sabbath. So Jesus was famous for healing people. Uh, and the, the Pharisees didn't have any issue with that, but they did have issue with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And from their perspective, you were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They understood healing to be a type of work, and therefore you shouldn't do it. But Jesus had a different view. Uh, Jesus thought that healing was actually not uh, uh, prohibited on the Sabbath. Actually, his view was that healing on the Sabbath illustrated and brought forth the deep meaning that had always been there about what Sabbath really is supposed to mean. And so they were having this de debate, and Jesus, in the middle of this dinner, in a Pharisee's uh, house, actually heals this man with a, a condition called dropsy, and, and, and therefore you could cut the tension with a knife. Now, that's the surface issue. But Jesus clearly sees that there's a deeper issue going on beneath the theological debate. And the real problem, according to Jesus, has to do with the deep orientation of the human heart. And oddly enough, Jesus recognizes the problem of, with the deep orientation of the human heart when he looks at the seating chart. Look at verse 7. 
Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by somebody to a wedding feast, don't sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. And Jesus says, just start with the lowest place, because there's only, you can only go up from there. Um, okay, I, when I read this, I had a memory that I, I shouldn't share, but I will. Um, a long time ago, I used to work at banks, and I was young, and when I was, I, that's not an excuse, um, and I, I was self-conscious because I had to persuade people who were older than me in the company to do the projects, whatever. And so I would show up to meetings I was going to lead early, and I would select my seat in the conference room, and then I would elevate the uh, office chair, this is terribly embarrassing, so that I looked a little taller than I actually was. <laughs> I'm a very silly person. I should have read this text, but why is Jesus talking about a seating chart? Um, well, he's talking about more than a seating chart. Do you see the word parable in verse 7? A parable is a simple story that opens a window to a spiritual reality. What's the spiritual reality? Well, you can see it in verse 11. Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What does that mean? Well, think of it this way. Uh, deep within the human heart, we are fundamentally oriented towards ourselves. Uh, David Foster Wallace is uh, one of the most insightful novelists and, and thinkers of the 90s and early 2000s, and he gave a, a famous graduation speech at a, at a university, and, and he said this in his speech. He says, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. I am the realest and most vivid and most important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There has never been an experience that you've had that you're not the absolute center of. Now, part of Wallace's point is that our self-centeredness is so deep and so pervasive that we don't even know it's there. It's like a fish in water doesn't know water is there because the fish has never considered anything other than water. In fact, Wallace's speech is called, This is Water. But Jesus' point is that as ubiquitous and common as that orientation is, it is also very, very dangerous. Because when we're deeply uh, focused upon ourselves, that self-orientation can lead us to uh, prioritize and center our own self-interest. And the pursuit of our own self-interest can become the unacknowledged priority of our lives. And Jesus calls it self-exaltation. And he wants us to see that it will lead us to ruin. Um, really? Somebody asks, how... How does that lead to ruin? That's normal. Well, go back to Jesus, because he gives two reasons why it might lead us to ruin. And the first is this. It will ruin our ability to love other people freely. 
Look at verse 12. This is the second story he tells. Um, he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you're repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You'll be blessed by God. Now, there's some cultural context to keep in mind here. Um, at this time, hospitality was part of a social economy. What does that mean? Well, it, if I hosted a dinner in this context, uh, if I could uh, invite people of really, really high status, ideally a little bit higher status than me, if I could get them on the invite list, and if I could get them to actually RSVP and actually show up, then I could be confident that they would feel obligated to invite me to their house later on. And if I got invited to the house of somebody of higher status than me, then that would up my status within the community. It was part of a social economy. Uh, in, in our culture, we elevate our status by various means. We earn a lot of money, or we... Uh, uh, become quite, uh, we, we graduate from a prestigious university or uh, we are part of a company that is really successful or we have a great family life or whatever the case may be, those are the paths, the pathways to increasing our status. Well, in this context, who you had around for dinner and who had you around for dinner was part of the pathway of exaltation. But can you see the danger? The danger is that this can distort our relationships and it can sabotage our ability to love. Because we're only loving people who we find useful. Go back to the very beginning of the story, the very beginning of the reading. Why were the Pharisees so irritated with Jesus? Or, or a better question, why didn't the Pharisees rejoice when somebody was healed at their dinner table? Well, part of it is they, they thought Jesus shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath because they counted that as work. But that's not all of it. There's more. Because in verse 5, Jesus points out that if they had a kid or, or, or an ox, a cow, that fell in a hole, they would by all means help that kid or cow out of the hole on a Sabbath day. But if they would do that for a kid or a cow, why wouldn't they rejoice that this man was healed? And the answer had to be that this man didn't fit into their pursuit of self-exaltation. He was one of those crippled and lame and blind and so forth that they, did, they didn't get an invite because he didn't fit into their pathway of self-exaltation. Their kid or the livestock were useful, but this man was not useful to their self-pursuit. And part of the problem is that that's what self-exaltation does. It turns relationships into tools to be used rather than people to be loved and to be served. And friends, it wreaks havoc in our world. I mean, just think about it. How much abuse in our world is down to one way or the other somebody found someone else useful to satisfying their, their selfish desires? Or how many families have, have fallen apart 
because one person found the other person no longer useful to where they wanted to go. Or how much of my pain and yours is explained because someone in our lives stopped finding us useful and we've been dealing with the wreckage ever since. Or how much social evil in our world is allowed to continue because the people who suffer that those evils just never make it to anyone else's priority list. And on the other hand, can you imagine what it would be like if you and I were set free from our self-exaltation and we were able to love people freely, especially when they gave no obvious benefit to us? The problem is self-exaltation can just sabotage relationships. But there's more because it can also sabotage our ability to respond to God. Look at Jesus' last story, verse 16. So once again, somebody throws a party, and uh, the person throws the party, and it uh, sends out a conventional invite list. Uh, sends the invite list out to people with resources, people with property, people with businesses, people who have made good marriages. But then in the story, something happens when those people get the the invitation. Each of them sits down and they start to do a cost-benefit analysis. They start thinking to themselves, which will serve my self-interest more, going to this party or attending to my new field, to my business? Which will serve my self-interest more, going to this party or focusing on my new marriage? And each one passes on the party. Now, I, I, I want to say, well, I mean, what's wrong with that? I do that all the time. I mean, businesses are important. Family's important. That's true. But remember, parables are simple stories that open up windows to spiritual realities. And all through the Bible, parties, did you know this? Parties are images of the kingdom of God. You can think of it like this. Um, the Bible says that we were all of us made for a purpose, and that purpose is not exalting ourselves. A and that purpose is not even, you know, achieving a mildly happy, comfortable middle-class life. We were made for something bigger. We were made to know God. And we were made to experience exaltation, yes, by all means, but not a self achieved exaltation, an exaltation that comes from being loved by God and loving him back and knowing the joy and the pleasure that only ex is experienced within that bond and that relationship. And according to the Bible, that love, that exaltation that comes from being loved by God and loving him back is so full of joy and so full of pleasure and so fulfilling that it can only be described by things like saying, it's like a party. It's like a wedding feast. It's like a banquet. It's like a dance. It's one of the reasons why feasting is one of the key activities that you're supposed to do on a Sabbath. But now look back at the story. Because the point is not just that they're passing up a party. The point is that they're passing up God's party. Self-exaltation makes me prefer myself, and it persuades me 
that things like my career or my business or maybe even my family or comfort or whatever else, that these things serve my interests more than being known by God. And again, I can hear somebody say, and I can hear myself say, well, is that so bad? I mean, if that makes you happy, if those are the things that give you meaning, what's so bad about that? And the answer is this. We were made for something bigger. We were made for God. And living for anything less than God will ruin us in the end. And it will ruin the people around us too. Uh, David Foster Wallace, once again, he, he wasn't a believer. Uh, but he intuitively grasped something of this. Same speech, he writes this, he said this. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. And worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. Or the way Jesus puts it, is everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled. Uh, do you feel the bite of that? Do you feel the bite of that in your life now? Really good things that we, I serve, and yet they turn on me. Or have you experienced that in the past? And I tell you, if you haven't, you will. Now keep all this in mind and go back to the original question. How could Jesus possibly tell us to hate our parents? How could he tell us to renounce our own selves? Well, he doesn't want us to hate our parents. And there's nothing about self-loathing in following Jesus. But he does call us to a fundamental shift of allegiance. Following Jesus includes decentering yourself, dislodging some of these default core allegiances uh, to myself, sometimes even to good things like my family or my career or a life of comfort or whatever it is, fill in the blank. And we've got to dislodge that allegiance, not because they're intrinsically bad, but because God is better and we were made for bigger. And on the other hand, when we are freed to prefer Christ above all else, it will then liberate us to come back to our family 
and back to our community and back to this world and back to our industries and so on and love in those contexts not because we're trying to get something from them but irrespective and even when they're not immediately useful to us. Now I wonder where is this beginning to bite for you? Or where do I find self-exaltation beginning to claw its way out, trying to claim control? Because this is not a one-off thing. It's not like you just flip the switch one day and you're good. The whole of the spiritual life is an ongoing decentering of self and recentering of Jesus. And of course, here's the thing. If you know yourself at all, you'll know that Jesus requires something of us that we really can't deliver. I mean, my self-exaltation is too strong and my humility is too weak to dislodge my self-absorption. And I can tell because there's a lot of people who are still utterly invisible to me. But this is why Jesus is so unique. Because Jesus demands of us something we cannot deliver. But it is also true that whatever Jesus demands, he first delivers to us as gift. Don't forget the audacious story of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He had the very best place at the greatest table. But he didn't grasp onto that place at his table. He wasn't like me. He set aside his honor, and he came among us as a servant. And he came to us, and he served us, not because we were useful to him, but despite the fact that we were not. And he reached out to the poor and the crippled and the blame, the blind and the lame, and he was counted among them. And everyone around him found him deeply useless or threatening, and that's one of the reasons why eventually they killed him. But Jesus' death, was a ransom to bring those of us outside the party into the party and into the banquet. And because of Jesus' great humility, God exalted him to the highest place and gave Jesus the authority to both pardon and to heal. And it's when you see Jesus giving all that he is for you, setting aside self-exaltation and embracing humility and being exalted by God and giving all that he is for you, that's when it calls forth in us a desire desire to give all that we are to him. And it's when you find Jesus forgiving you, loving you in a targeted way right into your guilt and into your shame and taking it away and loving you not because you're useful but despite the fact that you have nothing to contribute to this relationship. That's when you will begin to see that God is healing your soul. And that's when you'll find yourself with new resources to love people whom you previously ignored. To love people not because they give something to you that you're craving for, but because God has already given you everything you most deeply need. And you will find yourself praying something like this, Jesus, you gave all that you are for me. Teach me to give all that I am to you, and then send me out and give me creative ways of loving people whom I previously ignored, or loving people in my family whom I previously hated, or reaching out to people whom previously I would have never dreamt of serving. Make me to be like you. 
Got to become humble for that. But Emmanuel, it is the humble path of exaltation. And it is the path of joy. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.